Hi, and welcome to Beyond Bold by The Bold Age. Our aim is to encourage and support people approaching retirement and in later years to live a longer, healthier, more active and bolder life. We also want to create a dynamic voice for social change, recognising that boldies can and want to add value to society. In Beyond Bold podcasts, we will reflect on a host of topical stories, relevant news, and also interview some great people who are making a real difference to our Baldy community. Hi, my name's Andrew, and welcome to Beyond Bold podcast. In this episode, we're going to be looking at bold news, where we dissect pieces of interesting and quirky news from across the globe and have a roundtable coffee chat discussion. Today, I've got Stephen Nigel with me. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. So are we all going to be in agreement with each other as we, uh, we review the news? Not a chance. But as long as we politely disagree, that's fine. It's good to have, um, it's good to have differing opinions. I think it's been an interesting time in the news. Uh, I don't think we'll be discussing Mr. Trump or uh, COVID, will we? I think COVID might come up. You can't have a news podcast without COVID. That's true. As long as we don't discuss Trump, then that's fine. But we do have a bit of an election discussion coming up. Oh, that's uh, intriguing. A little teaser. Who's going to kick us off? I'll start seeing as I teased you about elections. Um, so the first piece I have pulled out is in relation to Myanmar, also known as Burma. In Myanmar, they have 87 political parties to choose from. My goodness. 87? Yeah, uh, <laughs> 87 political parties. Can you just imagine what the ballot list must look like? Yeah, I, uh, I can only. They do have an overall turnout, though, uh, for their elections of over 70% across their population. So uh, the last time, the last election, which took place on the 8th of November, they had 38 million people eligible to vote. But the reason I've chosen this one is that they opened up early voting to the over 60s. And they did that from the 29th of October. And the rationale was to reduce the risk of COVID. Um, and they have actually noticed that there was a higher turnout for older citizens going out to vote because they felt it was safer and they were looked after. So as I said before, that's um, of their population, uh, only 6% are over 55. So it's a smaller proportion of their population if you compare that to the UK, where 14% are over the age of 55. Um, but they've given them very special treatment, shall we say, or they're looking after their population so that they can go out and vote. And I thought that was a good thing. Are they talking, Andrew, about keeping that going post-this, post-COVID, or is it really just a COVID situation for them? As far as I'm aware, it's COVID-related, and that's the reason they brought it in, but it didn't mention whether they would continue it on or not. It's quite a young age if they're doing everyone over 55. No, sorry. The over 55s were 55 was the population, and the early voting was everybody over 60. Still quite young, though. Yeah, yeah considering we've um, got a life expectancy. Well, actually, the UK's life expectancy was 80, is 81 years old. In Myanmar, your life expectancy is 68. Oh, oh wow. So relatively... That is the older, older population that they've allowed to go out and uh, do the early voting. Has yes. there been any feedback well, from um, 
younger generations. I wonder if that's bred any any resentments from the youngsters. I can't imagine it has. Um, clearly, I don't know. But uh, so we were talking about it here uh, in terms of care homes at home, and people were complaining about them or talking about the news over here, not being able to visit parents and grandparents in care homes. And uh, my partner pointed out, well, you don't have that problem in the Philippines or other Asian countries because we're all a family unit and we always live together. wonder if uh, in Myanmar it might be the same thing, that the, the younger people are happy for their elders to go and have this unique or this shielded voting experience to protect them from COVID. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm doing quite a bit of work around sort of ageism at the moment. And, you know, that would be something that may well be construed, you know, in normal times, if that was to happen, as being uh, sort of an ageist thing where you're discriminating against one group versus another group in terms of the age and actually making a special case of a certain age group sort of degrades or, or reduces their feeling of togetherness and society as a whole. I can see how it perhaps could be construed as ageism, perhaps, but I, I see it more as a, a looking after rather than... Yeah, so they're just safeguarding their family on oh. And as I said, I think if it was to continue in normal times, I, I would struggle with it. But I think in these very unusual times, you know, you can see the, the real benefit of it. Well, I think it's, um, I mean, we've spoken about it before, just even the concept of early voting in general, I still can't quite get my head around, but that's a separate point. But you mean early voting as in days early? Yeah, I mean, we were talking about the US election and I'm, um, certainly in Australia and the UK, your voting day is your voting day. You don't cast your vote two weeks beforehand. Unless it's a postal vote. I like the idea. Segmenting out the population to have more efficient votes could be good. Safeguarding those who need to be safeguarded, I also think, is a good thing. Whether we see it next year or expanded into other countries, we shall see. Steve, how about your first article? Well, I've come across a new term this week. Obviously, many of us are working from home, having meetings online, exercising online with others. And the new term I've come across is a Zoom face. So obviously, a lot of us are using uh, Zoom, doing our calls online. And by and large, a lot of us are shocked when we see ourselves on the screen in front of us. Research would suggest that people are becoming very uh, self-aware and insecure about how they appear. The research particularly says it's an issue for the over 50s because we're seeing lines and wrinkles on the screen in front of us that perhaps we don't normally see every day. And we're seeing it in high definition. And as a result, people are trying, A, to avoid Zoom calls altogether, B, you're female, predominantly, putting on loads of makeup before you do your Zoom call. Or many people are going for Botox and other beauty treatments purely because they can't bear the sight of themselves on the screen in front of them. Does that mean you're actually going for the old treatments? or People are spending thousands of pounds on Botox to make them look better on screen. That actually doesn't surprise me. Does it not? No. Is that no. not really sad reflection on the society we live in? Yeah, you see that on Instagram, don't you? Demographic that are using or being drawn into Zoom may not have been Instagrammers before, but 
you know on Instagram that everything's photoshopped and filtered to hell. Maybe now people who are not using Instagram are starting to go, oh, I don't like that photo, but don't know that there's filters that can be applied. I also think perhaps you don't spend half an hour to an hour looking at yourself in front of the mirror, do you? Whereas if you're on a Zoom call, that's, you know, all you can see is your wrinkles. But apparently it is becoming a really, really big issue. What do you mean you don't spend half an hour looking at yourself in front of the mirror? I'm just speaking for myself, Andrew, obviously. I, I'm just amazed. Worryingly, yeah, it's big business. You know, you're, I was under the impression meetings were there for, you know, sharing your pearls of wisdom rather than worrying about how you looked on screen. But I always end up worrying about is how tidy my room looks, uh, what's actually standing or sitting behind me rather than, uh, rather than how I look. I think, yeah, as I said, it doesn't surprise me that actually when you talk about things behind you in Zoom meetings, I'm never looking, well, not never looking at the person's face. I'm more interested in looking behind the person if they've got a bookshelf. Oh, oh yes. I know where you're coming or, from. Um, that, I think that's, as, as Zoom calls, that's fascinating, getting a peek into people's houses. Yeah, something you, you before now we wouldn't really have seen or, or been aware of. You've got to be very careful what's on your bookcase. Yes. Actually, um, Grant Shapps was on on a news interview this morning, and he keeps changing his books around. And what he, he's got his bookshelf behind him, but instead of like a normal person and putting the books in the bookshelf, he's got it facing out so you can definitely see what books he's reading because he wants to make a point. And he's changed it every time he's had an interview. Someone's done a, a whole um, Twitter feed of all the books that he's had over time. Is he trying to come across as very intellectual then with his uh, reading choice? But clearly, you know, I think working from home is here to stay, isn't it, for a lot of the population. So it's it's going to be something that people are going to have to get used to. It's a very different forum, I think, to what some people are used to in their everyday working life. I'm even amazed that people have actually had the opportunity to to go out and get those sorts of treatments done. Do the Botox at home. Oh, can you? What, DIY? No way. Yeah. It's just an injection. No. Oh, we're getting into uncharted territory here, aren't we? So soon. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, was, it, it didn't take very long, did it, Steve? It's not recommended, but yes, you. Um, there are places that you can purchase. Well, I have to say, as a bloke with no hair, it takes me about two minutes to get ready for my Zoom call. Yeah, I'm not far behind you, actually, Steve. Me too. I've, I actually have got to the point now where I don't care. And it's we're just jealous, Andrew. <laughs> Nigel, what have you got? Mine actually, strangely, was a, uh, a fitness article from the Montreal Gazette. And it's actually say, you know, it's about ageism. And it's saying, does ageism keep older adults from realizing their exercise goals? And it was all about older people not being able to exercise or not allowing themselves to exercise because of ageist stereotypes. And it really came at it from sort of two angles, the article. And one angle was very much that it's the industry's fault, i.e. the gym industry, in that the imagery, the approach, the gyms themselves were all set up for more of a younger population. And given that we've got an aging population, and in the UK alone, you know, there are sort of 25 million people that are over 50. You know, so that's a huge number. Then an industry that thinks of it as being a younger age group industry you know, is missing massive trick. But that was the angle, the, the, one of the angles they actually took. You know, it even came down to the types of music that were being played, 
if you think about it, you know, the over 60s or the over 50s and 60s are underrepresented in the industry as well as instructors. And instructors tended to actually think about exercise for older people very much as an age thing without thinking about ability. So the programs they were actually developing and delivering. I mean, Steve, you're a, a PT instructor and have your own community gym. So yeah, I think um, I think what you've said is right to an extent. But I think, especially over here in the UK, I think there is now an acceptance and an understanding that the population is aging. And actually, a lot of the time, it is that more mature audience that has the disposable income. So I think gyms are slowly trying to tailor their offering. One of the uh, more upmarket chain of gyms in the country has made the statement that they will have one PT on every site that will be over 60 to try and tailor, you know, for that group. We occasionally play radio too in my gym, but not very often. So I think, you know, I think you're right about the music. Not every gym is full of, you know, lycra-clad lovelies. Um, But I think there is definitely a will to change and try and be a bit more um, open to everyone. I mean, we did a little article on our site about hardcore grandma from a, you know, a different country who was in there putting a lot of the younger people to shame with the amount of weight she was lifting. So it's true that, you know, just because you're over 50, it doesn't mean you have to sit down when you do all your exercises. You can do just as much as the youngsters and sometimes even more. And then the article also went on to talk about the fact that the people surrounding you also, you know, were using a language that was also not helpful. Slow down, take it easy. That's the kind of language that's being discussed. And actually, you know, there are some amazing people out there that, as you described just now, Steve, but I mean, you've got people like Helen Klein, who only started running, I think, when she was 55 or certainly in her 50s. And she's done 138 ultra marathons. You know, she's got 75 world records. Or Sarah Brewer, who actually rode across the Atlantic at 64. You've got Fahuja Singh. And you wrote about Fuja Singh. Yeah, yeah, the marathoner who did his first marathon, I think, at 100. Yeah, I think trying to wrap people in cotton wool as you get older, I think, is definitely the wrong thing because it just plays into the stereotypes. I mean, one of my favorite movies was, uh, I've forgotten the name of it now, Evie, I think it was called. She was retired, um, pensioner. uh, And she just picked up sticks. And it's a fantastic movie. It's about her climbing this uh, this mountain on Sky called Old Man's Store and just proving that it can be done. And she was uh, late 80s. Uh, it's just, uh, I think for me, that's just age doesn't matter. You can do it at any age and just have to maybe do things differently, but it can still be done. You can. I mean, we had Margaret on our last podcast and, you know, we've done an article with her before with a picture of her on the leg press. And she's 77, Steve. She's 77, she's seen young lads use it, and she wanted to give it a go. And she's seen the difference and loves the benefits of doing it. So, you know, that's great. And I think now that the the benefits of exercise for the more mature person are so well known now, you know, I do think there is a will on both sides, both the customer and the supplier, to make the environment much more welcoming. Is there also a change in the approach to or the reasons for going to a gym? Because would it not have been seen previously going to a gym was for the younger person because they were going to get the muscly body and the six pack, whereas now going to a gym is actually to get healthier? Yeah, I think it's a lot more bigger picture now, isn't it? And 
overall well-being whereas you know you're right in the past it was i want to go and develop my muscles now it's i want to lead a healthier lifestyle and be able to do whatever i want to do physically and there's that whole mental release in there as well i think I chose the article because it reminded me of why we started. And it was to ensure that people had a better quality of life, can live, a, live their life for longer, healthier, more independent than they otherwise would have done, and to actually help them along the way with that. The other interesting angle that the, the article took, though, was it wasn't just the industry or the people surrounding you not being helpful in terms of their approach but it was actually you as an individual being helping yourself and that it was too easy to actually use age as an excuse not to do things. Maybe because of the stereotypes that have been around, but equally putting the artificial barriers in your own way to do things. You know, and I was reminded about sort of Ed Whitlock, one of us wrote about, you know, he ran a marathon in three hours, 25 minutes. Well, I mean, I would struggle to get close to that. But what I couldn't, you know, sort of take was the fact that his best time was actually two hours, 54 minutes at the age of 73. A lot of the people took up activity later on in life. And you're right, Steve, you know, it's, it is about that quality of life later on and being able to actually live your life and have a quality of life that is similar to people that are decades younger. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to get on the floor and play with your grandkids, then that can be great, and you should be able to do that. And I think people are, people understand that a lot more these days, and the benefits of exercise to the more mature person is more well-published. And there is, I think, slowly, slowly, a desire on their part to do more as well, just because you're you know, over 50, over 60, shouldn't make any difference, really. We're all having to work longer and longer. So, and another interesting point they made, and that was it was also a social interaction. It reduced loneliness or it helped combat loneliness and isolation. And I thought that, you know, again, was a really important point to try and get across, you know, what physical activity can actually do. Yeah, it has been known in my gym for the paper to get read and the crossword to be done. And the exercise could almost be secondary some days. But That's something my type of gym. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of remember Margaret saying that when lockdown finished and she was, you know, she was able to get back to the gym, she really felt her confidence grow and she said she stood up straighter. And it is that whole interaction, isn't it? Because, you know, a lot of people do live by themselves, so it can be their only interaction with another person all day. So that's hugely beneficial. What are the gyms doing at the moment, Steve, to, um, to push for them staying open during the lockdown? Yeah, there's a uh, uh, UK Active is petitioning with the government to try to get them to understand all the work that's been done in the gyms to make them COVID safe. There's a, a petition online that last time I looked was, you know, about 500,000 signatories on there trying to get the government to reconsider. But equally, without getting on my high horse a little bit here, when you look at the science, there's absolutely no evidence at all of a high rate transmission in the gym. I still find it strange, though, that you can go fishing with a friend and you can't go to the gym where you've got sanitizers and you clean down all the equipment afterwards and you're socially distanced. I find it incredulous. Sort of moving on to our sort of second articles then, Andrew, what have you chosen as your second? Well, I've got one that gives us something to look forward to, and it's about bucket lists. Apparently, there is a boom in booking of travel for late 2021 because people are now, they've been trapped at home. They're thinking about their bucket lists and where they want to go. 
Um, so they've seen an increase in search traffic for places like Inca Trail, Kilimanjaro, Everest, who are looking to get things checked off of their bucket list. What was quite interesting, though, is that it's not cities and um, sites anymore. It's all about the experience. I thought that was quite interesting. Then trying to think of what's on my bucket list for 2021, would I travel? My bucket list is more an experience as well, and it would be something in the UK, something different. I don't know what that is yet. How about you, Steve? Well, I can't wait to go abroad next year. I had every sense of going away. Uh, I promised my children we would be going to Miami and New York. And uh, obviously, we haven't made it, but hopefully, as you were saying, the back end of next year is the time to go. And given the current climate, it's actually quite nice to try and have something positive and enjoyable to look forward to. I think a lot of people as well are perhaps more aware of their own mortality with all this COVID around. So rather than waiting to do your bucket list till you've retired and have spare time, I think perhaps people are more keen to to get it done. Mine is, uh, I'd love to go to Iceland, but my my all-time bucket list one is uh, walking in the Himalayas. That's something I would love to do. I did a 29 by 29 and a 30 by 30 and 31 by 31, etc. That's a good idea. I like that. Um, and they don't have to be big things. It can be small things on your, it's not necessarily a bucket list. I mean, some of them were live on one pound per day for a week. That was one of the things that was on my list. But it's interesting. As Baldies, we've got the time and life experience to, to really think about what, what you want to do next. And I think for me, what I found really interesting out of that, and it, it echoed how I've seen my travel habits change, it is, it is no longer about a city or a site anymore because experiential rather than I've been to Paris. So what did you see? Delightful mm, Tower. Great. That's not to put you off, Steve, going to New York, by the way. That's, uh... I've always wanted to do New York, Miami. Miami if I could be that guy in the convertible car in Miami Beach, I don't mind. I love Miami. Uh, I'd go out there again in a second. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, the weather, the people watching, uh, was just brilliant. And exactly like that, walking down that main street with all the convertibles going past, it was just, uh, it was another world. And that's got to be better than doing it over here. Oh, dear. So, Steve, your second. Well, I did say we wouldn't escape without discussing the joys of COVID lockdown. And obviously, it's on the news all the time. And this week, there is news that a vaccine hopefully isn't very far away at all, maybe even before Christmas. And the government has released its list of priority groups and who will get it first, which is interesting. So the order goes over 80s, those who are in care homes and also those who work in care homes, followed by the over 70s followed by the over 60s, then any adults with underlying health conditions, and finally, the over 50s. The logic being behind this, that uh, those groups of people are most at risk of dying, so they're first in line to get the vaccine, which on the surface you would go, yeah, that sort of makes sense. It's a bit of an interesting moral dilemma, because someone does pretty much get to play God in this scenario. And I'm not sure there's a right answer, to be perfectly honest with you. I think you can do that through the whole of society. It isn't just whether you're 80, 90, in a care home. You know, you can have some extreme, well, we've just talked about Helen Klein, Fahuja Singh, 
a fantastic quality of life, done some amazing things later on in their life. Why shouldn't they be able to have the vaccine? But equally, why are we saying that somebody in their 30s or 40s that could succumb at the end? Let's be clear about it. You know, people in their in their teens have died. And they seem to be the ones at the minute that are spreading it. And the growth of the of the virus seems to be highest in that age group. So I, I think the more interesting question though for us all, and actually all three of us most probably, is all of us will have an opportunity to take this vaccine at some point. Would we take it? Because uh, you know, according to some of the news I've read this week, twenty-five percent of people are unlikely to say yes, they want the vaccine. And I think I would be one of those, to be honest with you. It's good enough for JVT's mum then it's good enough for me. JVT being Jonathan Van Tam, for those who are listening outside of the UK, he did the mum test with our Prime Minister Boris Johnson and said he would recommend it to his mum. So I as well would take it. It's taken a bit of thought, though, because, I mean, Steve mentioned this to me the other day and we were having a chat about it, and I must admit, it did make me think whether I really wanted to, especially thinking, has it been rushed through? Is it going through all the right testing? And I know Jonathan Van Tam the other day as well, Andrew, made it very, very clear, be no sort of shortcutting of the accreditation and the licensing of it. But you just have to wonder a little bit. And he has to say that, doesn't he? That's all he would ever say. Yes. I would like to think that the medical professionals have a duty of care and that he wouldn't be. It's hard to tell, of course. Is it not a little big brother as well? I think, you know, we see the term COVID fatigue quite a lot in the press as well. Had enough of it all and people don't like or enjoy being told what to do. Okay, so in terms of you, you, your concept there of big brother is more about being told what to do rather than being monitored or... Yeah, the whole thing of, yeah, being told what to do and this is the vaccine and you all need to have it. But they're not saying that is the vaccine and you have to have it. That's just one Pfizer. We've also got the AstraZeneca one with Oxford. But out of my circle of friends, I have to say, there are very few that are keen to be at the front of the queue for the vaccine. You know, maybe as more research is released and everyone feels happier that it's safe and all the rest of it, that may change. But I'm, I'm not surprised that it's quite a high number and a high percentage that they want it at the minute. I don't think any company should be making profit off of this vaccine. So as long as any profit is going to medical research or to supporting people who've got COVID or living through COVID or putting it back into the community, fine. As soon as Pfizer or any of these government advisors are getting any penny from it, then no. And what is the state of play with that? No, I think Pfizer's getting the money, aren't they? It's normal commercial. And they've had to put masses of resources into it. You know, that could be another way of actually looking at it. How much support have they had from the government? Mm. Uh, but I didn't I read this week that the people that are actually sitting behind it, another company, not Pfizer, who are going to become billionaires as a result of, they've said that they are going to put it all back or a significant proportion of it back into medical research. Okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah, as, as I say, you know, for me, it was with a heavy sort of heart in a way would say yes, because actually I want to enjoy the rest of my life. And I don't want it cut short. And I think that's key, isn't it? That it does depend where you are in life, how your health is currently, depend on your decision-making process. I think you are right. Like just um, on, on the very first part of your of the article is uh, about that moral choice. I came across one on Twitter this morning, actually. 
who is a nurse in the U.S., who did a, a Twitter poll. Um, and it's something they are actually going through at the moment. I don't know if they're having to make these decisions, but it's, uh, it's a decision that we've heard about in the news. Um, there's a potential. So you've got one ICU bed left. Three patients need it. A woman with two children is bleeding to death from complications of childbirth. A young man of 23 years old has crashed his car and crushed his chest. And an ICU nurse can no longer breathe on her own because she's got COVID pneumonia. Who do you choose? Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad I... Oh, the only thing I can say is I'm glad I'm not making any of those decisions. I, that would be the most awful, hateful thing to actually face. There is no right answer there, is no, there? No, um, because no matter... When I was playing through the different thing, the different options in my head this morning, and it's like, ah, but what about... I was like, oh, jeez, no. I do not envy our health professionals at all. I agree. What that also shows us is that we've just got to abide by the rules. Because if we don't abide by the rules, we are going to be facing some of these dilemmas. You just do not want to put anybody in that position of making those sorts of choices. And assuming the vaccine can get across the border after we've left the EU. Oh, for my last one, I chose one that was all about vitamin C and how it can help you, if you're in your over 50s, retain your muscle mass. And I chose it because it just surprised the heck out of me. I've never thought of vitamin C helping to actually maintain your muscle mass. Vitamin C as in orange juice Barocca type thing. This was from the Hippocratic Post. There's some serious science behind it. The University of East Anglia, they'd looked at 13,000 people aged from 42 to 82. And they found that people that had high concentrations of vitamin C or higher concentrations of vitamin C in their blood had the best skeletal muscle mass. So if you think as we age, you know, that's the one thing that does actually disappear over time. And it, and it can be held back, obviously, through exercise and all the things we talked about earlier. But vitamin C plays a really big part in it. What vitamin C does is defend the cells and tissues of the body. What they also went on to say was the vitamin C is important. You're not talking about high doses. You're talking about one citrus fruit and a side of vegetables every day. That's all that is needed. Lemon meringue tart, does that count? I don't think that counts. I don't think that's one of your five a day, Andrew. No, unfortunately, I wish it did. Somebody will must be right in now and tell us it does, by the way, but... Uh, but the other surprising statistic was they found that 60% of men and 50% of women in that age bracket of 42 to 82 were not getting enough vitamin C on a daily basis. I can believe that. Now, I found that astounding. All the older people that are coming through and entering into that demographic, the sort of tidal wave of potential issues that are being stored up you know, through not having sort of daily dose of vitamin C. I found that a really interesting article because it was it's one that surprised me and that's very much news to me nigel but that is very interesting that one and given the fact that steve well actually all three of us we all sort of take our health really seriously we take our exercise seriously we try and eat reasonably well and we've written a lot in the bold age on uh, nutrition and uh, we've written about vitamin c and i hadn't really equated it with that and, it, and you said it was a, an academic paper, wasn't it? So it's not... Yeah, University of East Anglia. Yeah, so you know, it's just, it's not an accidental correlation. 
they looked at 13,000 people. So it's an incredible piece of research and it's going to be really important, I think. So guys, I think we've we've come to the end of our newscast. Uh-huh. Right, we're going to be doing these every uh, couple of weeks. So we have to sort of get our thinking hats on. And... Or if anybody listening has any articles that um, they find interesting, just send them through. Yeah, and that's to Alive at the Bold Age, Andrew. .com, yeah. Just send your articles through and we'll, um, we can discuss. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Beyond Bold Newscast is the official podcast of thebaldage.com, alive and kicking in our 50s and beyond. <laughs>